Welcome to Crossing the Chasm, a sound physician's podcast covering a broad range of topics relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare. And now, here's your host, Dr. Greg Johnson. In this podcast, we discuss a variety of topics, and they are intended to be challenging topics around diversity, equity, specifically health equity and inclusion within healthcare. That's what the podcast is obviously about. That's what the title restates. But fundamentally, we're interested in providing not only better visibility to what the issues are, but also the active solutions and uh, that exist out there. Uh, we're very intentional about identifying individuals who have focused on a particular area within diversity, equity, and inclusion, and demonstrated that progress can and will be made. This episode is no different, and it's a particular joy to bring to light the fantastic work that this episode's guest, Dr. Sydney Teal, has brought to not only her local community, but uh, surrounding communities as well. In the end, it seems trite, to some extent to say, yes, I can, uh, as the way that this should be viewed. But the simple fact of the matter is that her story articulates an approach to medicine, an approach to diversity, equity, inclusion, an approach to health equity that really is modeled for many of us in understanding that there are things that we are capable of doing. Uh, as an individual, we have tremendous uh, impact. And when you take your individual uh, efforts and identify other individuals who want to get involved, then the impact can be quite dramatic. So I bring to you uh, an outstanding story that really is, yes, I can, and yes, we can have a significant impact and enjoy this episode. Welcome back to Crossing the Chasm. Uh, I am always excited to have a new guest on, but I'm particularly excited, as I think you guys have heard me in prior episodes, when I get one of my mentors to come back and have the opportunity to, to share with us. So today I'm joined by Dr. Sydney Teal, um, and our relationship is she was my chief resident um, in a galaxy far, far away a long time ago. Uh, Dr. Teal currently serves as Chief Medical Officer of Reciprocity Health. We're going to hear about that later, but she's had a wide and varied career in healthcare as uh, a primary care and community medicine uh, leader. She uh, has been in primary care in uh, Delaware for uh, a number of years. She served as a healthcare consultant, uh, as well as a hospital's chief medical officer. Uh, and I am incredibly happy to have her here and joining me today. So welcome, Sydney. It's so great to look, see and hear you again. Thank you very much, Greg. I, I truly do appreciate the opportunity. And you know, when you talked about us knowing each other for such a long period of time, suddenly I felt old. Like all of a sudden, I was like, oh God, I don't want to feel old, but thank you. Gosh. Yeah, I guess it's been a minute. Uh, we've uh, it's we've certainly grown up in uh, in this healthcare space, so I really do appreciate the opportunity to be here. Oh, thank you so much. So uh, 
we do it with every guest. We want to hear it from you. What is your story? How did you end up here in healthcare, not just on the, the show, but uh, uh, here in healthcare and doing what you do? Sure. So I'll I'll start because I think for me, for my story, my journey, it's uh, it's critical to begin uh, at the beginning of when I decided I wanted to be a physician. I wanted to be in healthcare. Uh, it was I was eleven, and I it was February, and I was eleven, and we had a book report that we needed to do for Black History Month. So uh, my my mom took me to the library and I was perusing books and I came across a book called Black Inventors and Scientists and I pulled it off the shelf, sort of, you know, thumbing through that book. And I read about two uh, pioneers in medicine, Dr. Charles Drew and Dr. Daniel Hale Williams. Uh, and I was really struck, uh, very struck in that moment uh, about the work that they did in healthcare. You know, Dr. Charles Drew uh, essentially inventing blood plasma and uh, Dr. Uh, Daniel Hale Williams being the first surgeon, period, black, white, or otherwise, to perform open heart surgery in North America. So I was really astounded by uh, their ability to overcome barriers uh, in, in, in their fields um, and to be extremely successful. And then I was struck uh, about how Dr. Drew died uh, in a car accident, uh, suffering from severe blood loss. And uh, I was struck because he was in the South um, and he died en route to the Blacks only hospital because they would not accept him at the whites only hospital. Um, you know, and as an 11 year old, I'm thinking, gosh, how would how would we in this community, in our world, um, ever allow another human to die based on the color of their skin? And it was in that moment that I said, you know, I really want to commit myself to a career um, and a path where I'm helping people regardless of, you know, what you think of race, color, creed, religion, you know, add on gender identity, um, right, uh, affiliations. And so, you know, it started my path of wanting to really uh, become a physician. And so uh, everything I could do up to that moment to uh, to learn about medicine, to understand the various specialties, understand the requirements, I I really just went uh, you know head on into into understanding the field, and um, you know I remember in the summers in high school I would uh, shadow other physicians and I would uh, read about medicine and I would do uh, summer courses, summer uh, summer school courses, so I could take more courses to prepare myself for. For med, uh, for I'm sorry, for college at that moment because I wanted to make sure I could get all the pre-med requirements in, and then when I went to college, um, I was pre-med, but we didn't have a major called pre-med. It was just a whole curriculum that essentially was a major uh, to to fulfill. But I thought it was really important to be a good communicator, so I majored in communications instead. And because I did that, I had to go to school almost year round because, uh, you know, you, you're trying to do essentially all of this work, double the work. So it was all it was all good and it was certainly worthwhile. But um, really just an amazing experience to prepare myself, as I said, for medical school. Uh, and, you know, and so, you know, I went into this path. I got into med school. I went to school in Virginia. And one of the things that really struck me is, you know, now I have to sort of figure out what specialty and I thought I would fashion myself, you know, be a cardiac surgeon. I thought I'd be an orthopedist because I played sports. 
Um, but really, it was my experiences. My family um, lived in rural parts of uh, uh, Virginia. And what struck me is that when I would go to visit them, I would hear elders talk about, you, you know, like literally they were packing up their day to drive to the city to see, to get quality health care. And that's when I realized, you know, um, I think it's really important for people in rural communities to have quality health care. And so that's really when I started on my path towards um, primary care medicine. Um, and uh, I was really fortunate enough to get the National Health Service Corps scholarship um, and was able to, um, you know, embark on my journey uh, through medical school. Um, and then we met, right, because I decided I needed to be the super duper primary care doc much like yourself. And so we, we uh, embarked on this, uh, you know, there were only three residencies in the country of internal medicine and family medicine. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that training was ex exceptional. So if there's a plug for Oxner, here's a plug, exceptional experience, exceptional um, leaders, uh, a great, great, uh, really great experience. I learned so much uh, during my residency, um, so good stuff. And so when it came to finishing my residency, I had to fulfill my obligation in a medically underserved community. And my family was on the East Coast. We were in New Orleans uh, and I settled in a uh, small rural community called Cecil County, Cecil County, Maryland, uh, Elkton in particular. Uh, I was only supposed to stay for two years and I stayed for 20. And I really will tell you, it was it was a phenomenal experience. I was able to truly, um, I was in private practice for 11 years. Um, you know, it really was where those things where you see patients, they are, they're paying you even with eggs. It's very, very true, paying you with eggs. Uh, uh, but really just an extraordinary experience of where I appreciated the value of practicing medicine and the skills that I brought to the community. And really the fulfillment of knowing that I was making a difference for the community um, that I was serving in. Um, I then went into leadership. Uh, I had a good, I was very fortunate to become the chief medical officer uh, at the hospital uh, where I was, uh, that I was affiliated with and that had recruited me to that community. And that's when uh, I stayed there for seven years and then went into um, a larger leadership role uh, overseeing leader, uh, primary care and community medicine, as you shared at Christiana Care in Wilmington, Delaware, um, which is also a really phenomenal experience uh, at that leadership level. You know, but then COVID hit. And, you know, COVID really, for I think most of us, was really a game changer. I think we're often, we think about, we think about physician burnout uh, and, and clearly, uh, you know, hospitals probably felt the brunt of that. As, a, as an outpatient physician, um, I felt it in a different way in the sense that I looked around and I saw uh, very stressed outpatient, you know, clinicians uh, and teams. I saw uh, our communities not understanding what direction to go and where do you follow the evidence? Um, who do you listen to? The myths that were out there about COVID itself. And then, of course, as the vaccines came along. Um, but I really felt 
that this was a moment that um, rather than shying away from medicine, we really all needed to lean in and say, how do we really help our community and each other to understand the, the impact of, of this, this infection, of this pandemic, um, and how do we get through it together? And uh, it was during actually the pandemic uh, that I decided to leave my leadership role uh, in Wilmington and uh, I, I stepped away and I connected with two other physicians, two other black physicians, uh, Dr. Joan Coker, who is an ear, nose and throat otolaryngologist, and then Dr. Velma Scantleberry, who is a living legend because she is the first African-American transplant surgeon in the United States. So it's kind of cool to be working with people, women of such high esteem. And, and I mentioned them and I mentioned us working together because what we really identified and saw firsthand throughout the pandemic, now, you know, I'm no longer in this rural community of Elton, Maryland. I'm now in the city working predominantly with a large black and brown population and uh, not having access. And so we having access to healthcare, not having access to um, education about the infection not having access to ultimately vaccination and really truly identifying the barriers that were keeping black and brown people from good health in general, not just where we're talking you know, specifically around COVID, but in general, why blood pressure wasn't controlled, why diabetes were out of control. And it really, it really broke down, really essentially uh, was very uh, apparent to us that there was a mistrust of the healthcare system. Healthcare systems that had proximity in terms of like the, you know, you know the healthcare system literally is, you know, block away, two blocks away, less than two mile radius for most of our uh, black and brown uh, uh, population in the city of Wilmington. I'm talking Wilmington specifically, but this was really seen more pervasively throughout the state of Delaware. Uh, but a mistrust of under you know the system itself and not feeling as though the system was very uh, welcoming. We often heard um, that uh, patients would share uh, that they would sit in the waiting room a little bit longer. They, if they were late by 15 minutes because they had to take three buses to get to that appointment, they were turned away. They had taken a day off from work. Um, and despite those things, they were still being turned away. Uh, if they hadn't gotten their blood work done or their imaging studies done because they didn't have time because they were working two jobs and one of them was overnight and they just didn't get a chance to 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 do those tests, they were labeled as being non-compliant and thus were seen as um, those who just were not interested in uh, you know uh, taking part in their healthcare journey. So we came across people always talking about and always feeling like they were being judged before they even opened their mouths uh, but by virtue of the color of their skin or their zip codes for that matter. And we learned all of this because we, uh, as, as a team, and there were many other black and brown physicians who also did this, but we as a team were vaccinating and educating uh, the members of our community uh, throughout the, the, the pandemic. And so I fast forward back to, I leave my, my role uh, uh, as a leader in, uh, at the health system 
And I turn to them and I say, we can do this. We, we can form a nonprofit healthcare organization. If we continue to look at someone else or look for someone else to cure the ills, to close the gaps, to bring healthcare closer to black and brown communities, it will never happen. Um, they are too large. They have too many other competing priorities. Um, but this is a work that we can and should be doing as physicians of color. And so we brought ourselves together. We incorporated. Uh, we formed Delaware Health Equity Coalition. We are a nonprofit healthcare organization as a shared. We are a clinical practice that is um, a patient-centered medical home. And we are, that is our foundation, but we have four other pillars. Our pillars are community education, research, and, uh, uh, and uh, advocacy, uh, workforce development. Um, these are our, um, these are our pillars. And then of course, making sure that we are creating a milieu for not just our community, but for academic institutions, for research institutions to understand how community-led healthcare can inform academic institutions, research institutions on how to best meet the needs of their various populations. And so we have been uh, beating the bushes, writing grants, uh, starting our practice. We saw our first patient at the end of December 2022, uh, we are really ramping up from a practice standpoint. Uh, we have been able to receive funding. Um, our first funding organization was Highmark, a health uh, healthcare system, health insurance uh, company here in uh, Delaware. Uh, they have been so grateful, gracious um, to really take a chance on us. Uh, as a as a very young organization, and we've been really fortunate. Our medical society has also been a grant funder, uh, and we have so many others that were in the pipeline right now. So we're so excited about the way that we have been embraced and our our philosophical approach to how we are uh, how we're practicing medicine and how we're creating a holistic approach, an integrated medical care model uh, that really brings both. Uh, the um, medical side, the somatic side of, of healthcare, but also the mental health side of healthcare together. And we are addressing social determinants at every encounter. So we're understanding, we're getting a better appreciation of what's going on with the patient, what's going on with their family, what's going on in their environment that informs us as, or, as, as, as physicians to ensure that we can put together the best care team for them to be successful, not just to address their acute care needs, but ultimately to change their healthcare trajectory, right? The, the, the trajectory of thinking about dealing with acute acuity of illness, but rather to, to really curb that chronicity of medical illness, uh, if not stave it off and really get people to be focusing on prevention and wellness. And so we're very, we're in our infancy stages, you know, we're, we're almost, you know, almost at six months, I guess, at this point, almost six months really of seeing patients. Uh, but we're, every day we're excited and we recognize the impact that we can make um, on our community. So um, I know I just, just said a whole lot of things, but you can see the energy in my my voice. I, I don't think I've ever been more passionate about uh about the medicine that I'm practicing at this point in time. 
Um, it, and the reason I say that is because when I go back to the very beginning, when I go back to being in that library, right, reading about uh, uh, Doctors Williams and uh, Drew, and I think about that sort of promise I made to myself about saying, I want to take care of people regardless. Um, I feel like I've gotten back to my roots and I, I just only see good things ahead for us. Lots of great energy and really thriving in this in this environment. That's I. I'm, I'm borderline speechless and I can't be speechless on a podcast. Um, it's. It's uh, amazing um, the work that you're doing. As I was thinking of all of the the questions and things to delve into um, as you were going, not only from your story um, and being a very clear example of like you can see yourself when you're seeing others and the importance of representation in medicine and helping to guide uh, people towards that goal to, um, you know, the pillars that you identified for the Delaware uh, Health Equity Coalition um, and knowing how closely they are tied to the pillars that we, you know, that I've continued to highlight that we see from unequal treatment, right? These are known recommendations in very clear areas that we can definitively help to address health inequity in this this country. You're doing it um, in the, you know, in a community-based way. And then I know my my personal favorite at the end, because um, was was listening to you like, no, as a local organization, we can inform our academic institutions yes. because you know, I'm personally riled up about hearing about DEI initiatives being shot down in other states. And you're like, no, 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 you have to do this. And by the way, we're the ones that are going to tell you where the research gets done and how to do it effectively to be able to meaningfully impact uh, our communities. I, I guess you hear my excitement, right? I'm just like, you're doing it. Like, it yes. can be done. Yes. Yeah, I think that that's what's so exciting for us because you know w when I left, as I said, when I left the large health, you know, large health system, I started looking at other jobs. I thought, okay, well, maybe I just need to go. I just need to, you know, maybe work for someone who is kind of doing this work already. And as I interviewed with, I think some really phenomenal organizations, I thought to myself, why do I need to work for someone else? I can do this. We can do this. And I, you know, I I feel like. Um, there's no better time than the present. You know, the article, I think I, I may have shared it with you, that came out in May of 2023, the JAMA article uh, about the, you know, um, hi, well, there were two two articles. The one um, article that highlighted um, uh, Black physicians that uh, patients who are cared for by Black physicians actually live longer. Right. You know, and obviously this was just a uh, you know, it's sort of a teaser, if you will, in terms of we, we really need longitudinal studies. But, you know, I, and, and and it's not you know exclusively about Black communities, Black physicians, but it is about representation. And it is about being able to look into the face of um, someone who you feel is really invested in you. And I think that that is what has, that is a distinguishing factor and characteristic for us in the work that we're doing. You know, our patients are, are uh, you know, we don't limit ourselves to who, who walks through the door. We have purposely and intentionally started our first, our first practice in the highest risk zip codes in the state. Why? Because this is where these are, this is where people need the care the most. This is where the greatest disparities are existing. And so we're in the community and we're getting people 
who honestly throughout the, their our initial interviews with them, our initial conversations with them, they are just thanking us and thanking us and thanking us. And you know what they're thanking us for? Thank you for listening. Thank you for letting me be heard. We just did our first round of uh, Google surveys, and that's exactly what popped up. It popped up. Thank you for listening. Thank you for allowing us to be. Thank you for treating me with respect. And for those people who came late, they they were so apologetic. We said we understand. No, I, we understand. I was, well, I, I was going to ask you about that because that because it is that. What's the tangible difference to the patient? And, and obviously, you've been able to extract that um, in, in terms of. Um, the surveys and and obviously you do it in the care when you're saying that you're trying to change the trajectory of patients' care, you go where you have the biggest opportunity. And so um you do that. I, I was also thinking to myself, I was like, for you're saying that as that you're never been more passionate, you're like my the entire time I've known you, you've been passionate about healthcare. So Sydney holds everybody accountable at a very high level. <laughs> and she makes sure that we execute. And, and you're saying over and over again, yeah, I can do this. Yeah, that's not a surprise either. So um, I, I totally get it. Oh, can I ask um, one logistical question with that? Sure. So with the healthcare teams, has it been a little bit of like having to almost retrain that bedside manner and approaching the patients? Or was that something just right off the bat they knew like, because you were saying that those were issues that they were having before. So with your organization, I'm just kind of curious how to how you've moved that needle, even in that early on part. Yeah. So the three of us, um, uh, Dr. Scale, Barry Coker and I, I, I think this has always been our practice style. Um, and so we're we're just we're small but mighty at this point, meaning that we haven't uh, we've hired uh, internally for support staff, but we haven't hired uh, other clinicians yet, but that will be, it will be a key factor, but it's interesting that you should say that Jay, or you should ask that question. And the reason why I say that is because it's not to say that there aren't many passionate, capable physicians who are out there who, who want to do this work. Cause we know that they, they're there, you know, many of them are already working in, uh, federally qualified healthcare centers, right? They're already working in community health uh, centers. They're working in Indian Health Service. Um, you know, so they're already doing, and they're working in public health. So they're already doing a lot of this work. But there are some structural biases that exist in medicine, right? That some of us, I, I, I would even say myself, sometimes I don't even think I, I, I'm, I realize. And so a big part of what we're hoping to do as we are informing ourselves and as we are engaging in this work is to create a different curriculum, right? A different curriculum that informs, as I said, how do you take care of medically underrepresented communities in a manner that embraces the diversity, embraces the fact that there is a whole lot more going on with that person than just the diabetes, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia that you're managing. Um, it, it, it transcends what we consider, I think, um, the, the, the nucleus of how we practice medicine. Um, it also really demonstrates the need and the desire, the importance of team-based care. I, I alone cannot take care of the community. I have to have a medical assistant. I have to have uh, an office assistant. I have to have a care manager. I have to have people from the community who know the community. It is not, while I say our proximity takes, obviously brings a level of intimacy, right? 
uh, you're looking at someone who has a similar shade, shade of skin color. We are not the same people. And so I don't want to in any suggestion, in any way, shape or form to suggest that just because I'm black means that every black person is going to embrace me. <laughs> that is not that is not going to happen. Right. right? Any black and brown. And so to, to suggest that that's the only solution would be um, a very narrow perspective. But what we need is we need the ability to connect on some level and then be able to have a whole care team that helps to support and reinforce that connection. A big part of it, though, starts with that personal investment, sitting down, making eye contact, giving time, not saying your 15 minutes is up, things like that. You, you just can't do that during these, uh, especially during the early uh, appointments when you're meeting with people for the first time and they don't know who you are. And they still and again, the color of your skin may get you over one hurdle, but the trust takes time. Trust takes time. And so we also recognize the importance of bringing in um, our support team. We have um, a group called Network Connect. They are they have uh, two phenomenal women who started this organization with the idea um, that they will bring, they're like community health workers, but they're the name of their job title is Community Wellness Ambassadors. And so they are people from the community who have been trained in trauma-informed care. And so they have become part of, they are an integral part of our care team. So when I'm sitting down and I'm meeting with a patient and I'm identifying that there are factors, whether those be socioeconomic, whether those be um, other factors that are beyond my scope, I immediately refer them within our practice to the community wellness ambassadors. And so through their interactions with the ambassadors, they are then connected to additional resources within the community. So it really does take a village for us to be successful. Going back to your question, creating the curriculum that allows for clinicians to be able to identify um, where their gaps in their own skill set which are, again, it's beyond the practice of medicine. It's really that social skill set, that social determinant skill set, not just identifying, but to be able to be um, able to connect people to those additional resources is what we're looking to create in, in this environment. It is to inform the large health systems. It's to inform the uh, policymakers. This is, this is how you take care of people in these communities in a different manner that will will lead to a different outcome from what we've been seeing. And that's when I started to reference the JAMA article where we talked about, you know, 80 million lives lost, um, perinatal death being the most preeminent um, finding, the, the number of black and brown babies that have died over the last decade and a half um, is astronomical and highly alarming. So what can and should we be doing differently to be able to reach these young black mothers, these black mothers who are high risk um, to ensure that we have different perinatal outcomes. So that's that's the work that we're in we're, we're invested in. That's that's fantastic. I, we could get you going on this topic alone um, indefinitely, but we usually give you a break and say uh, that we get to our section of Ask Greg. Uh, Jay loves this because everybody throws me fat, either fastballs uh, up and close to my chin or they throw me curveballs that I had no idea were coming. So I don't know what question you have coming for me, Sydney, but I am geared up and ready. 
wow, you think I'm going to, okay. Um, you always did, so I don't know. Uh, that is true. I know, but now you, I, I wasn't even going to try to do that. I, I figured, you know, we would have a different relationship this time around. <laughs> Are you kidding? I, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think for me, what's, uh, what's intriguing is I said, and I started this actually before you know, we started this conversation beforehand, but I'm going to come back to that. You know, I think it's this phenomenal work on part of uh, sound physicians to uh, really be venturing outside of, I think, what's been the traditional scope of, uh, of, of the work that you do. I think what I would be curious about and interested in, interested in learning more about is why you're doing it and where do you envision uh, this work going and and um, how would AI inform the work that you're doing? I, I see. I knew it. That was like the first one. I was like, oh, I can answer that question. The second one, I was like, oh no, here we go. Um, so the first part in, in terms of why sound is is really supporting um, this effort really comes back down to data um, and the point of what, you know, so, you know, organizationally, we've trucked along for a while, um, you know, focused on acute care medicine, hospital medicine first, and now, you know, a couple of additional specialties. Um, and I think similar to a lot of other organizations, there was a jolt um, in terms of, hey, there's a lot of stuff going on in that, you know, we serve a lot of communities around the country, and there's been a jolt um in terms of saying what are we going to do and what are we offering differently to serve our communities and when it came particularly around the, the focus on health equity you know the data is pretty compelling it's one in you know black and hispanic latinx uh, patients are one and a half to two times more likely to receive their health care from a hospital-based provider we are an acute care medical group. And so whether it's emergency medicine, hospital medicine, critical care, anesthesia, these are our patients. And so when um, our team got together of, of uh, medical leaders and it was, well, these are our patients, so what are we going to do? Um, we did similar to what the Health Equity Cooperative did, which was to say, okay, well, what does the literature say? And the literature says, here are things that you can do. Um, and we just took those recommendations and said, okay, you know, we we are a medical group. How do we, re it's not even reconfigure, how do we um, make sure that what we're doing has meaningful outcomes from uh, comprehensively DEI, but particularly a health equity perspective. Um, and so what has been launched over the last several years now uh, has been what are we doing from diversity so are we analyzing our clinical workforce and are we really um, intentionally focusing our clinical workforce and reflecting the communities that we're serving um, what does that mean for leadership are we mentoring and fostering and sponsoring leaders um, so does that mean scholarship work and does that mean other things does that mean that we've you know, created resource groups, um, employee resource groups or affinity groups internally to make sure that it's an inclusive environment. And from a health equity standpoint, we've got four specialties. So each specialty you mentioned, um, you mentioned uh, uh, 
um, maternal uh, maternal fetal morbidity and mortality. We have an anesthesia group. They have to interact with OBs all the time. We don't do OB hospitalists, but it was okay. We interact with these patients all the time. What can we do? Hospital medicine, it was our outcomes. We know length of stay is different for black patients. We know um, that there are concerns about mortality differences with Asian patients. There's there um, um, the interactions around advanced care planning discussions in our uh, critical care practices. All of these things that are in the literature, and we just said, these are things we know how, to your point, we can do this. <laughs> these are things we can do, so now let's go do them. And then more importantly, because we do have resources, let's measure what we do and let's reflect back to our hospitals and our communities that there are outcomes that we can meaningful impact that benefit patients. And by the way, they happen to benefit our hospital partners. And most importantly, they impact the communities that we're serving. The AI piece is gonna be a huge one. And I admit uh, it is an area that I am trying my best to get my hands around because um, you know, some of the challenges that are, are going on with AI I, I have to do with the fact that AI was built by human beings and there is a lot of data uh, or at least reports out there that we've taught AI to be racist. Yep. <laughs> and yep, so that's right. how does that apply in terms of our ability to ensure that AI isn't um, <clears throat> negatively impacting our patients, but also thinking in the positive standpoint of, we are a technology-based practice, and how do we how do we get AI and um, to how do we utilize AI in an efficient manner to say, oh hey, now our nurses have captured these social determinants of health, and hey, Dr. Johnson or Dr. Teal, you've got bang 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 resources, and we're going to start getting you plugged in to be able to do that. There's so much uh, opportunity to have AI enhance what we do in our practice and quite honestly, decompress the load that we have on our physicians, nurse practitioners, and nurses um, that I see as a tremendous opportunity. Now, that's large scale, sort of high level. How do we get this actually applicable so it shows up on, my, on one of our clinicians' phones um, in a manner that they can receive and doesn't consider, uh, isn't considered an additional burden? That's a whole different level of, of, of um of care, but uh, I'm working on it. So uh, thanks, Sydney, for putting just one more thing on my, my plate of work to do. <laughs> no no worries. But you know, it kind of, it's a nice lead in though uh, to the other work that you know that I'm, I'm doing with, yeah. you'd mentioned reciprocity health earlier. Uh, so um, so we, we, we too are sort of venturing into that sort of technology space. So my other hat is as Chief Medical Officer of Reciprocity Health. And, um, you know, Reciprocity Health is a health tech company. We have a mobile application called Therapy. Um, and really what we're doing is we're using uh, behavioral economics to promote patient or consumer adherence. Uh, we are working very closely with, in our market with um, Highmark uh, and their um, health options uh, uh, insurance um, uh, division to really help close the gap for prevention and wellness. And again, this kind of goes back to when we when we ask the question, you know, how do we close disparities, healthcare disparities? I think that that's the beautiful piece of reciprocity in the therapy application because um, we are working with uh, the Medicaid members of, uh, of our community, about 150,000. Uh, 
with a program that helps them to get the well child care, well baby care, help uh, the parents to get well adult care, asthma control, uh, weight management, and just a whole uh, 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 portfolio of different programs where the member gets paid for engaging in this work. And there's a lot of uh, literature out there, not a lot, there's some literature out there, I'll say it that way, some literature out there by CMS that suggests that once you get people inspired and motivated to do this work, and you're using economics to drive it, that they will continue to be adherent with uh, engaging in these programs. And this is really important because I feel like, especially for the Medicaid community and in our community, where this reward program exists, we're not only getting people into care, we're getting their children into care, they're getting their lead testing done, they're getting their vaccinations brought up to speed if, the, if for any reason that they are there's a lapse. Asthma control, asthma is fairly prevalent in, in our community. And so ensuring that kids are getting their inhalers filled and, and being able to get that money is really, really important. Now they can only spend that money on like groceries or goods, like at a, a Dollar General or at a grocery store, Walmart, et cetera. They can't buy tobacco, alcohol, or firearms. So those things are out. But the best part about this program is that if they don't need the money immediately, if the, if the, the members aren't using it immediately, they also have the opportunity to um, develop a savings account. So it also can promote financial literacy. And I think that that's the beautiful part about the way that the application works and what we're doing at Reciprocity Health. We are also, for those who maybe aren't, you know, they don't, they do snail mail or they, they do phone, we have that capability for them as well. But we have a whole team that also helps people who have technology gaps. So we're also closing a digital literacy gap. So we're, we're closing health equity, financial literacy and digital literacy. And, and I think that's a tremendous trifecta for a community for a community um, and communities, whether it's uh, you know around the country or around the world. I think that's the beauty of what we do at Reciprocity Health. And that's why I'm so excited. You know, I'm, as you can imagine, pretty darn busy, but I, I love it because it's it's it really helps to connect my patient population. It's like a win-win for me. You know, I have patients in my practice. They're, they have this uh, health insurance product. I'm like, you can make this much money and you are able to create a savings account for your children. You don't have to you know, necessarily spend that money, but if you need to spend that money, you're able to spend that money. And I think, again, we're talking about truly closing these gaps uh, and making a difference so that um, people aren't um, reverting to either previous behaviors or for that matter, regressing in terms of their chronic diseases. Uh, so it's the win-win. So I get you because we're, as I said, we're engaging in this work too. Um, and it's exciting to be able to do that and using technology to help to advance or to close that health equity gap. No, I think it's tremendous. And I I love the, the fact that you've incorporated the financial literacy piece because it's all, I mean, it's all intertwined, right? Health That's equity right. doesn't stand independent from <laughs> fundamental literacy, much less, uh, you know, uh, financial right. literacy That's and right. helping to make that transparent in what sounds like a incredibly <laughs> simple way yeah, yes. um, for patients and others to so that way we're decreasing barriers and helping to to interlink those things is fantastic. So kudos to you around that. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, before we start wrapping up, I want to uh, make sure that Jay, our uh, man on the street, 
gets any of his questions answered. So Jay, anything else that you want to uh, send over to Dr. Teal? Yeah, I mean, there's a, a million questions I could ask, but I was I was thinking about this, and and really, if there's only one that I, I can get, um, you know, I just would ask a little bit of a general question, but you know, I think I think it's awesome to hear that you you've started, you know, a nonprofit, able to do all this work. And I think you know, if you were to say anything to the you know the listeners of just kind of how to motivate them to to take action, because I know like personally for me. You know, I, I lead a small group at our church, and it's been a lot of work trying to do some work with you know, service, whether it's the homeless community, whether it's with foster organizations. And a lot of times, you know, we've kind of start, stop, start, stop. We have these best of intentions, but to actually see it to the finish line is so hard. And I have a feeling that that's how most people are. So I think mm -hmm. if you just had any advice, you know, not how to start a nonprofit, but even just to encourage them or how to actually like see these things through. You know, it, it's a you know, it's a it's a good it's a really, really good question um, because you're you're absolutely right. I, I think uh, it's very hard. It really is hard to see that I'm going to use that proverbial expression, the forest beyond the trees. Um, um, I I tell most people I just try to take one day at a time, Jay. I, I know that we have a goal. I try to ensure, I think we all try to ensure to remind ourselves of what our ultimate goal is, uh, but we know that it takes, you have to be incremental in nature. So really not to try to um, uh, try to do everything in, uh, you know, all at once uh, because you will get burnt out, but to rather say, you know, you create almost like a vision board. Here's where we want to be. This is what we aspire to be, or this is where we want to be um and then you create that time frame and then you back up you back into that in other words okay today one today's june 5th you know what are our goals for every day and make them incremental in nature just not to just overwhelm yourself with trying to get to day 30 but rather just start with day one um and then it, it always helps to have like-minded people who are with you people who support you who are positive um and those who can give criticism that is um, not just constructive, but really helps you to think more about what are the next steps. I would love to say that I know ultimately at the end of the day where we're going to end from a Delaware Health Equity Coalition standpoint. I mean, I think we're already looking at um, being, you know, going beyond um, Delaware because this is not a unique situation in Delaware. And quite frankly, it's not just unique to the United States, right? It's it's all over, it's all over our world. And so Honestly, I want to say the sky's the limit for us. But if you ask me, you know, where do we want to be? We have some specific goals that we have set forth, and we're trying. It's it's hard, you know. You're you're we're very excited. We want to like let's go, let's get to that next place. Let's like let's open that next office. Let's let's do this. Let's do, and we we will get there. But really, trying to have a level of um, uh, what's the word I want? Uh, uh, not maturity, but really a level of discipline to ensure that we take one step at a time. Um, I think COVID taught me to really appreciate the journey, not so much as the end. It's like really appreciate the journey. Um, you know, when we were in residency, we were like, can we just get through this? Let's be done. <laughs> but, I, you know, at this point, I, I would say that I think I've, I've learned to just to understand good, bad, or indifferent. You're going to have great days and you're going to have days that you're like, I, I love a do over there. But just to know that not to give up and make sure you surround yourself with a lot of positive energy. 
Thanks so much. I'm, I'm definitely have to apply some of that. My my group meets on Monday night, so I think tonight, yeah, I'll definitely share. I'll be happy to I'll be happy to dial in. I'll give them that speech. <laughs> I have to do that. Uh, I'm I'm all for it. Whatever. We're we're connecting people Delaware to LA. That's just you got how, it. Let's do it. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Sydney, uh, before you go, where we told you at the beginning, before we, we started recording, we'd ask a couple questions, which is what's a topic you would love to hear from us or a person you'd love uh, for us to uh, spend some time with? And uh, obviously the loaded question after that is, and so if you name a person, can you help us get them? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, gosh. Well, so the easy one is probably think you should hear from our tech company quick. I mean, I think you should hear from our CEO. I, I would start with our CEO and uh, co-founder, there are two co-founders, Matt Swanson and John Sylvan from Reciprocity Health. I think that understanding the phenomenal work, uh, the vision that they've had to be able to, I think, really change the trajectory of what's happening in different populations is phenomenal. And I do think that there are um, messages one to be heard for sure. I, I don't think I do it justice, quite frankly. Uh, but to hear their passion and their vision is, is really a thing to, to, to behold. So I think that you should invite them uh, onto the podcast. And a topic. Gosh. Um, ooh. Gosh, gosh, gosh. Uh, probably I would love to hear more about diversification uh for sound uh like what what does that look like what is what does diversification look like in medicine in other words you know would you ever have someone from uh, like the farmers bureau on to talk about sustainable food sources for communities so that you can decrease the incidence of diabetes and hypertension because people are eating processed foods for example uh slight sidebar so when we looked at our original data i mean like the first set of data uh, from from the uh, patient population that were using the therapeutic cards, the rewards. Yeah. They, they, the predominant um, company that they were going to was Dollar General. And the reason why is because in the city of Wilmington, uh, sh- food stores like like a Shoprite or an Acme uh, is really really far away in comparison to the Dollar General that's right. almost on every store and uh, on every corner. So you wonder, you know, is there an opportunity now to partner with Dollar General to say, you know, could you start serve, uh, offering um, fresh foods? Could you, you know, what are the ways in which you can now create sustainable um, food sources or partner with food co-ops and Dollar General to ensure that people are getting fresh fruits and fresh vegetables and fresh meat that's not processed, right? So Big, there you go. That's a good one. That's a good one and a new one for us. So I think it's for us to explore. Well, want to say once again, thank you so much for being here. Uh, as I anticipated, it was a fabulous discussion. Uh, don't be surprised if I call you back. Uh, so that way we can explore some of this other stuff in more detail. Would love to do that. Thank you both. It's so good to see you, Greg. I'm, I'm, so, uh, I'm so excited for you and your success. And Jay, it was a pleasure to meet you. And as I said, I'm really, and you can call me if you like. Um, I'm three hours behind you, so whatever you need, I'm happy to help you. Well, I, I definitely appreciate I that. Think I think I'll, I'll, I'll probably begin with having them uh, listen to the episode. So, <laughs> love it. All right, take Bye, care. Thank you for joining us for Crossing the Chasm, a Sound Physicians podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Crossing the Chasm wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Sound Physicians is a multi-specialty medical group committed to improving quality and reducing the cost of healthcare for patients in communities across the country. Learn more at www.soundphysicians.com.